Good morning. Our passage this morning is 2 Samuel 11. We'll look at the first five verses. As you know, today is our fourth Sunday of Advent. And as we've been saying, Advent is waiting. It's waiting expectantly. Now, obviously, Christmas and the way our culture celebrates Christmas has elements of waiting. We wait for presents, especially if you're younger. And when you get the present, you have about five minutes of joy. And you want more. But Advent promises something far richer. It promises us to meet us where our problems are. We have a problem. We have a need that needs to be fixed. We have a brokenness that needs to be healed. And Advent is a season where we're free to come express that to each other and worship with the hope of Jesus coming. And when Jesus comes at his birth, what the people celebrated, what they realized was happening was not just the birth of a baby, but they envisioned a perfect life, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his death. They understood that with Jesus comes hope and comes the true future. Simeon, when he sees baby Jesus in the temple, says, now my spirit can depart in peace, for I've seen the Lord's anointed. And that'll be our confession today. So Advent is waiting and it's longing. And as you know, we've been looking at these mothers of Jesus. We called it the unlikely mothers of Jesus because at first glance, each of these women we've studied seems unlikely to be in the Matthew's genealogy. Why are they there? But as we've studied them, we've seen Tamar's passion for justice. We've seen Rahab's fierce protection of her family. Last week, we saw Ruth and how Ruth, her faithfulness in such a dire situation, just faithfulness. But what are we going to do with Bathsheba? It's a sad story this morning. And what do we do with her? I hope that uh, we'll find out something new this morning as we study. I know I certainly have this time around. I, we did a series on King David. Um, I think in our transition period to this building, we are still in that series. And looking at this story from David's perspective gives you one approach. But of course, the challenge this time is to look at it from Bathsheba's Stance. Why are you in this lineage? And what is God doing? And I want us to know before we read the story, the way you frame a story, the way you frame your story, often will dictate how you understand the gospel, understand Jesus, understand hope. Right? And so we're going to really frame this story this morning. So let's read together from 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you for being a truth teller. 
Lord, we need help. So often we hide from the hard places of our own lives. And I pray this morning as we see the courage of David to face his sin, as we see the courage of your scripture to give us truth, that we would ourselves be so filled by your spirit we could open up to all the places we hide from you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This past week, in the last two weeks, I've been reading a book by Frederick Buechner, an author I love. He's a Christian writer. He's still alive. I will say I don't agree with all of his theology, so don't read him and think everything he says I believe, but a phenomenal writer. The book is called Telling Secrets. It's a memoir. Uh, It's his third and final memoir, and, and the first memoir, Sacred Journey, talks about his father's suicide, but this story, this memoir, he dives in a little bit more into the reality of that event. And here's what he said. He said, his suicide was a secret that we nonetheless tried to keep as best we could. And after a while, my father himself became a secret. There were times when he almost seemed a secret when we were trying to keep from each other. I suppose there were occasions when you might have said, remember the time he did this, or remember that time he said that. But if so, I've long since forgotten them. And because words are so much a part of what we keep the past alive by, if only words to ourselves, by not speaking them and by not speaking what we remember about them and about the people and about my father, we soon simply stop remembering it all. At least I did. He goes on to say, because they moved from where he grew up to Bermuda, right after the death, he says, I forgot what my father smelled like. I forgot what my father looked like and sounded like. I think we forget these places. And, and part of the problem is we're so desperately trying to forget the harms in our pasts that we're losing parts of ourselves. And so this morning as we look at David and Bathsheba and the sin, what we're going to see is the Bible is calling us to bring out even the hard places. Because in our glorious places, there's harm, right? We know that. There's sin everywhere. But in our harmful places, there's glory. There's also places that can be healed. And what we're going to find in this story of Bathsheba is that God is saying that through this really bad event, I'm going to do something really big. And he does. And so our message this morning is because Jesus is doing the same with your story, we can embrace the dark places of our lives with hope. So let's look at the story. If I asked you about the story, how would you tell it? We just read five verses. How does this sound? David doesn't go to war. He stays home. Um, He's out on the roof. It's sunshine, noon. He's tired, wiping the cobwebs from his eyes. And he sees a woman bathing. And he's blown away by it. He asks who who she is. And they send for her. And she chooses to come to him. and, And they have this affair. It was a mistake. It was sin. It was awful. And he repents. And afterwards, we're told that she's conceived, and that's how we get to Solomon. That's a good story, right? Is that accurate? It sounds accurate, doesn't it? How about if you take a side? Let's tell it from David's perspective for a minute. David's minding his own business. He's on a roof. He's at his palace. What can you expect? And he looks down, and there's this woman. And she is trying to seduce him. She's naked, and she's outside right? And, the, and so maybe David's like, what, is, what do you expect him to do? And, and by the way, when he sends for her, 
she willingly comes. And we know as we track with each of these other women that lineage matters. And she's like married to a Hittite. I can have the king's child. Like maybe that's on her mind. So when he sends for her, she's thinking opportunity, right? I'm going to take this opportunity. We know later uh, in, in a later story when David's very, very old, she has to manipulate the situation to make sure Solomon gets his birthright. So is it possible that to take David's side, that's how you would tell the story? It's all Bathsheba's fault, or 80-20. So how do we do it? Are you a David guy? Are you the plastic story person? Or are you a Bible person? Because that's what we're going to be this morning. One commentator calls it literary restraint, that the writer of 2 Samuel is being very careful to show us whose fault we're looking at and whose sin we're engaging So we're going to look at this for a little bit closer and look at what we see in this passage. Number one, I think you know these things. David should be at war. It's very obvious. He's sinning in a way. By not being at war, he's not fulfilling his calling. Furthermore, it's noon, and he's out on a balcony that probably never has anyone on the balcony. But there he is at noon. Thirdly, um, she's like purifying herself. So the author seems to be showing that she's doing her, she's like devout. She's doing right things. Her husband's away at war, but she knows she needs to stay clean and she's doing the right thing. And more, most importantly from our passage, it says, he took her. He took her. It's interesting also to note that when David asks about her, uh, one, it just says one in the English translation, a servant tells, is this not Bathsheba? Daughter of Eliam. This is a person David knows well. He's one of David's mighty men. Eliam's dad, I'm not going to pronounce it well, but Ahithophel. That's not bad. Ahithophel. Always look over at Thomas for my approval. Is her grandfather. He is the chief counselor for David. And then you have Uriah, her husband, a mighty man. Okay, the mighty men. I've just named them twice. Eliam was one, Uriah. This is like his delta force. This is when David's in the, in the wilderness fighting off Saul and the Philistines and doing these crazy things. These are his guys. These are the guys you want on your team. These were close confidants. And when he, when the, what the guy's telling David is, this is Bathsheba. She's untouchable. She's your dear, dear friend's daughter, granddaughter, wife. David takes her. That's the wording. He took her. How do you hear the story when you hear this story? I think we struggle because we want him to be our hero. And what we don't know how to do is keep someone in the hero column who's done evil things. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about this morning. We don't know how to hear the story. And so what we'll find ourselves doing in not only this particular account, but in our own narratives, is re telling them, re-narrating them, changing them so that we keep the heroes in the hero column. I uh, recently watched, I don't know if you've seen this on Netflix, The Devil the Devil Next Door. Anyone seen this? It's about a man named John, and I will not say his name. He's um, Ukrainian, but Dem, Demjanik. That's his name. He's retired. He's a, uh, he's, he lives in Cleveland. He has a family. He's devout. He came over after the war. But somewhere after he's, you know, in his like 60s to 70s, some note came to somebody that said he was a Nazi war criminal. And as they began to explore the, 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 who the person he supposedly is, 
they call him Ivan the Terrible. He was at Sobibor, Poland. So he's at a camp there. He was in charge of the gas chamber. Um, I mean, and apparently there was actually, during his trial in Israel, um, victims who had worked around him during the, the time would just tell you the things he did. They were horrendous. And you find yourself hating this guy. But then, like a good document, document, documentary, I need to work on speaking, um, they kind of make you realize maybe, maybe he's not the guy. It turns out that the card was probably doctored by Russians and, and maybe it's their attempt. You know, and so what you find is as you go through this entire story is you're back and forth. One moment you're convinced of it. Get rid of him. He needs to die. He did this evil stuff. The next minute, oh, he's innocent. Oh my goodness, how, what, how horribly sad. He's been in prison for eight years as they've done trial after trial and you're torn. What do you do with your stories? How do you tell them? You see, Ivan, the terrible, that is John, who ended up being guilty, but died in prison, is a very harsh story. But when I was done watching that Netflix series, I don't think I thought about it again until I started preparing the sermon. Yet my own story has impacted me every day, and so has yours. How do you go through and examine your own stories? What we often do at Grace Church, and it's fitting that we do so, is we talk about the confession of sin, and we talk about the sins we've engaged in against God, and we confess them. And, and our primary, a, a primary means for sanctification is when we do that. We confess our sins. I think what we do very poorly at as a culture and as individuals is confessing the harms done to us. We really struggle so let's talk about the name of this sermon. If you notice in the Matthew, um, well, I'll talk about it in just a moment. Who is, who is Bathsheba? We're back at our genealogy. We're in Matthew. Um, we go through each of the people in David's lineage, and we build up to David. And so what Matthew has masterfully done is given us a genealogy from Abraham to King David, and he's going to take us from King David to Mary. To, to Jesus. But when he gets to David, we have no question who David is, and we don't have any question who David's son is. Do you all know who David's, I've already hinted at this, Solomon. David's son is Solomon. That's who carries on the line. Solomon uh, is a really great king, probably from the world's perspective, the best king of Israel. He grew uh, the, 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 the borders as large as they ever became. Um, when asked by God what he would want, he asked for wisdom. The queen of Sheba visits him. Uh, he builds the temple David starts, right? Because he's a king of peace. So during a peace time with no war, he's growing. He's amazing. He leaves us Proverbs. He leaves us Ecclesiastes. He leaves us Song of Solomon. Read carefully. Um, he's a great man. We don't need any more information about David and Solomon. But yet, Matthew tells us, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Wow. What an insult. I mean, right? The wife of Uriah? Can we not get her name? The Bible gives us her name, right? Bathsheba, right here in 2 Samuel 11. When you read the passage again, you'll notice... I mean, kind of. When David arose, he sees a woman, and the woman was beautiful. 
So just talking about our woman. And he inquires about the woman. Now, someone else tells him it's Bathsheba and gives her dignity. Her father is Eliam. Her husband is Uriah. This is Bathsheba. Like, this is a person. He sends for her, takes her. And then it says, she returned to her house and the woman conceived. The woman I think what the Bible is showing us is the way David views Bathsheba. She's just a woman. She's just an object. She's not, he has no value for her, even though she's connected to so many people. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about this discussion? I think you can argue if you choose, and I, I would welcome you to. It's a good thing to do in a sermon and go, I don't know. I mean, after all, what, what is Ryan saying? Is this a rape? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think what David did could be classified as rape. He is a king. He has total control. And she was sent for. The Bible says he took her, and she came to him. And he sends her home. Now, so often we want to fight that accusation because, well, I mean, was, she 100, was he 100% to blame? I want to encourage us to understand when we look at our sin or our stories in harm, we need to quit trying to do percentages. In the moment that you're looking at a particular sin and repenting, it's 100%, right? I didn't 30% lie and 70% sort of tell the truth. That part that was the lie is 100%. And David does act out of his kingship and kingliness and doesn't think of her as a person. He's not wooing her as a new wife or anything. He's illegally taking her and defiles her. Okay, but what about Psalm 51? If this is rape, then in Psalm 51, you're going to have David say, against you and you only have I sinned. I mean, and I did this horrible, horrible thing called rape. Right? I mean, wouldn't you expect that? Except he also murdered Uriah, didn't he? And he doesn't say it in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, where he's repenting, he doesn't say, against you and you only have I sinned, and I murdered Uriah. The point is, that's not what Psalm 51 is about. It's showing that David recognizes the essence of his sin is against God and God only. Right, this, the point of Psalm 51 is not to try to explain and parse out all the particular sins. But how do we really know the way the Bible views this whole story? And the answer is Nathan. Nathan comes to our rescue. It's, it's again, one of the greatest pieces of the, of the Bible where Nathan is the prophet. God says, you need to go tell David like, what he did. Now, if you're Nathan, David's, David's in an ugly zone here. This is not David at his best. So for Nathan to have to go in and try to explain to David that God's against him and He's sinned and, and really wake him up to what he's done. So he does this process. He tells a parable. He goes to David and he tells a parable. He says, listen, there's a man in our kingdom. Now, David doesn't know it's a parable. And this man has a lot of sheep. He's very wealthy. But his neighbor is very poor, has one little ewe lamb. And he loves that ewe lamb like a daughter. Now, what was David's profession before he became king. He was a shepherd. So his heartstrings are being tugged at. And then Nathan says, now the rich man had a guest, and to feed the guest, instead of taking one of his many, many sheep, he takes that little lamb 
from the neighbor. And he kills that lamb and feeds it to the guest. And before Nathan can almost finish the story, David's just like, that man must die. Now, if you're Nathan, you're going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we're talking maybe he gets two sheep. Like, that's the law, you know? Or maybe four. I mean, I don't know. You're wanting to kill him? And we know what, David, what Nathan famously says. David, you're that man. You took a sheep. You took innocence. That's why I believe the Bible doesn't name her. Because I think the Bible, Matthew, wants us to remember that she was an innocent sheep. She was the wife of Uriah. That's front and center. She was taken by David. Now, a lot of the premise of what we're talking about is the harms in our own story. And I want to remind you that David, in his confession, his repentance psalm, we've just talked about Psalm 51, he also adds, Behold, I was put forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And I don't know what he's talking about. I don't think there's some secret story about his mom and dad, Jesse, that we don't know about. I think David is fully aware that at the height of my sin and my awareness of my sin, while I'm repenting before the triune God, I'm also aware that my sin is larger than me. I have been harmed. I have come into existence through sin, and there is a storyline as well. And many of us, and I've talked to many of you about this, struggle to name the things that were done to us because we're afraid it's blame-shifting. We'll just take all the onus ourselves. I'll just focus on what I've done. Because if I can do that, then I can grow and heal. But I don't want to attack anybody in my past. And I don't think that's the Bible's way at all. To me, it's a little bit like when people eat, like they want to get strong so they start taking protein. And then eventually you'll hear these stories of somebody that like ate so much protein they died. And recently Shane shared with me like, Water, more people die from over drinking. Now, I hate saying this because I want you all to drink a lot of water, okay? But more people die from over drinking water than from dehydration. Am I saying that right? Okay, we'll talk about it later. It sounds really good right now. Here's the point. Those people that count, you carry that gallon with you and you have your protein thing, you're overdoing it, okay? We need a proper diet. And with, with repentance, our repentance certainly begins with our sins and thoughts and words and deeds. But if we're not looking at the broken places in our past, I'm wondering if we're truly repenting. Or are we simply trying to take it on ourselves? I'm going to confess the things I've done, but I don't trust God enough to use these harmful places to bring glory. I think that's a picture of shame and contempt from our lives. Mr. Uh, it's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the movie. Who's seen it? Raise your hand. Anybody? I can't see any. I, I know Eddie's seen it. It's a really good movie, I've been told. Um, it's a movie about uh, an author, Lloyd Vogel, uh, for Esquire, who's having a horrible family situation happen. And in the midst of this, he's been asked by his editor to go interview Mr. Rogers, and apparently it changes his life. Now, you keep hearing me say apparently, and I've been told. Why? It's a great story, a great book. I have seen the documentary on Mr. Rogers, but I, was going, I had planned this sermon ahead. I wrote on my notes, go see Mr. Rogers. 
And then the other day I said, I'm going to go see Mr. Rogers. He wants to go. Look up the times. It's not showing in Stillwater. We have 10 theaters and it's already gone. I said that to one of my kids and they said, yeah, it's because it's about pain. Isn't that interesting? This is the story that's Tom Hanks. It's Christmas time. It's about story and forgiveness and your, and your past. Gone. We're going to choose like some Grinch movie instead. That'll get five people to come sit and watch it and spend $50 on popcorn. What is our problem with pain? What is our problem with story? I have an assignment. Here's my application assignment for you guys, and I really mean this. Um, this is a, an assignment those of us who've gone through some of the Allender training had to do initially. I'll encourage you to do this. You can do it today or any day, but to take, I think today's a good day. Take out a piece of paper, pray, take a pen, and write down five harmful stories of your life, kind of your roadmap of your life. Five things that are, happened in your past, probably before the age of 18, even though later we can work on later things, that shaped you. And just kind of note how you feel as you write those down. How do you tell those stories? How do you remember those stories? I would encourage you to do that. And then, by the way, I would love, if you ever want to meet with me, to sit down and talk about any of those stories. I'd love to do that. Well, should we wrap it up? How does this bring glory, right? How does it bring glory? How does a murdered sheep, Uriah, Bathsheba, innocence lost, how does that bring glory? I mean, it's very obvious we have in David a hero who becomes a villain. And the Bible is very clear, the only hero is Jesus. We need to be very, very careful about trying to make people into heroes that aren't heroes. Only Jesus is your hero. Think about for yourself. If I, if I can't accept that a person in my life did harm, then how can I honestly admit that I've done harm? Conversely, if I'm aware of my sin and subsequent atonement in Christ and need for his righteousness, then certainly I can hope for that for those that have harmed me and recognize that that's not my hero, that person. I think that's one of our problems. The other problem is we have a really tough time of understanding how, well, if I say that that event was bad, but all these things came positively out of it, I need to kind of say that was a good thing, right? No. No. David should not have raped Bathsheba. We got to Solomon and we got to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came, and in Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He became the sheep. Whatever harm or trauma has been done to you, that is evil's attempt at taking you out. And I will tell you this right now, if you don't address it, if you don't name it, if you don't pray through it, it's doing its job, I promise you. Yet Jesus goes to the cross and takes on all of our sin. He's on the cross, he takes on our sin, and he dies. But it also says in Hebrews 1, or 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 2, 
look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. The shame of the cross is what? Death. All trauma, all harm, all evil is hinting at death. And it's trying to snuff you out. And it's trying, Satan wants to snuff you out. Your own flesh wants to snuff you out. Not physical ending because then you go to heaven. Shame, contempt, broken families, broken stories. And I'm encouraging us this morning as we look at Bathsheba who disappears into the shadows can encourage us to say, wait a minute, Jesus saw her as a mother. The story is that baby died. That baby died. But then David, after grieving, went back to Bathsheba and they had a new child, Solomon. And as I told you, Solomon was a glorious king in many, many ways. But the ultimate king, Jesus, came from that horrible event. What are you going to do with that? Again, are you going to say, well, it wasn't, therefore it wasn't as bad as I thought? No. What you're going to say is Jesus is more merciful than I thought. And Jesus will use dark things to bring glory. And so I hope you'll write those stories and begin to pray that you could forgive for sure, but that you could also be honest about the things that have happened and see the ways Jesus was even present with you and is bringing you up and making you stronger for his glory through those events. Let's pray. Lord, this season of Advent, we long for your return. We long, Jesus, for you to come back. We long to be with you face to face, to be embracing you, to be held by you, to know that the marring and the effects of not only our personal sins, but the sins against us have been covered by your blood. But Lord, in the meantime, while we wait, we praise you that your Holy Spirit is present applying your mercy, renewing us, giving us courage and strength and growing us. And Lord, I just pray as a congregation, we will become more aware of our own personal stories so that we can love others as they trek through their stories. For your glory, amen.